on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The people that you interact with emergently, the critical care doctors, the transplant doctors, the trauma doctors, they can speak for you. And I think that sometimes using our allies to speak for us in places where our voices may not be heard as much can be very powerful. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more at our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, host Dr. Barbara Nichol Hamilton speaks with interventional radiologist Dr. Janice Newsom about her work in postpartum hemorrhage response teams and their potential to save lives. Dr. Newsom, welcome to the podcast. I hope you've been well. Yes, I've been well. We thought it would be really nice to bring you back after your IR quarterly article about postpartum hemorrhage response teams. I was actually wondering what motivated you to develop a formal response team at your institution? You know, the motivation is definitely multifactorial, but I would tell you that we all know this inside and as well as outside that we work best solving complex things when we work together as a team. And for one, we've done very, very well in interventional radiology tackling serious, serious problems when we collaborate with other people for which our specialties intersect. And it became clear to me after dealing with a particular patient at one of our catchment area hospital that we needed to form this response team if we wanted to continue to work together within the medical community with other specialties so that we can get better outcomes for this group of patients that were having bleeding after childbirth. So that was the motivation in trying to envision this postpartum response team, because we've done this quite well with trauma teams and now PERT teams and rapid response for airways and now sepsis teams, etc. So that was the motivation for envisioning this postpartum hemorrhage response team. So it's like one case or one outcome really crystallized the need for this. Absolutely. And with that response team that you've been formulating, did you see a change in referral patterns for postpartum hemorrhage? Yeah. So we work at, and maybe very unique to to where I work at, at Emory, is that we take care of interventional services at many different hospitals. And it was clear that at one of our hospitals, we barely were getting any calls at all for the same disease process bleeding after childbirth, then we would see at another hospital less than two miles away. So what we needed to do then was a lot more heavy lifting in terms of um, getting engaged within the hospital system. And it didn't just include giving talks because those talks were given, but how do we formulate a response so that we could show that we were present and that we were engaged and, and able So did we see any change in the referral pattern? I would say absolutely. So the postpartum response team is in its infancy. We're still having discussions uh, about getting all the stakeholders at the table. But at this one hospital, just from our engagement in their review of the maternal mortality and showing up 
all the time, trying to kick away all the barriers. And sometimes it is the, okay, if you have a question, you should call me or you should call X person, not this elaborate scheme of how to get in touch with IR, but who do I really need to talk to if I have a question? We have seen even more referrals than (laughs) than we have done procedures on, which uh, which has been fantastic. So lots of consults and not lots of consults. And we've also done, you know, a handful of procedures in one year, I'd say uh, over six embolizations in one year at that hospital. And I think as a result of the conversations around putting this team together, although it is not all the way, it's not grown up yet, it is still in its infancy. I think this will be really validating for a lot of people who may wonder why they are not seeing more at their institution. I know at my place, we do thousands of births per year. And I feel like I really just do a few cases a year of postpartum hemorrhage. So this is, I think, going to be really interesting for people to hear that this is happening at your institution too. Absolutely. And it turns out that this is such a problem that the OB community, they're also being very innovative as well. And while we're fighting COVID and other things, you know, they're also innovating in having new devices that not just wick blood away, but also cause muscle contraction of the uterus that they're working on how we solve this issue simultaneously. So it's multiple reasons why we may not be seeing some of these referrals, but I would encourage everyone to not give up hope, right? It is a a true team response. And even within our teams, I'll just share that we've had team members that have come and gone even since we've tried to put this uh, team together. And that impacts how the team works together. But if you continue to work at it, uh, make it more broadly and to say, even if it doesn't involve a procedure, which we're very procedural oriented, like how do we become become a part of the conversation so that if you're a part of the conversation at the table, and then in the next few months, you'll start being able to introduce ways that you can have real better outcomes for your community. When it came to that conversation, did you find that you were facing some specific objections or points of hesitation from your OB colleagues or even others in the hospital when it came to treating these patients with UAE as opposed to surgery? Yeah, yeah, had to deal with, uh, well, how, how quickly can you guys get to the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always been that like, when we're ready, we are really, really ready. And we want you now. And it is through the conversations about the postpartum hemorrhage team and how we work in a similar situation, let's say with trauma, that if we are notified earlier, then it doesn't have to be the well, we need you now kind of thing. It is mm-hmm. when do we get included in the algorithm that right now ends in possibly an embolization, but that's far down the line after many other things are being done. So if we could be included at the very beginning, then it won't be, oh, well, now we need to decide if we're going to do a hysterectomy or an embolization, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do we include us when the blood loss is before we get to, you know, five units later? If we are given the privilege of time and there is a placental abnormality, implantation abnormality, then when can we know about that now so that at least our teams are prepared? And that even in the case where there's no warning at all, like, you know, our knife and gun club of Atlanta, like we don't we don't have warnings that tonight it's going to be very busy, but we have a team prepared for when we need to respond. And I think once we alleviate that fear from the 
OB team that if they call IR, we're there. And uh, I, I promise you that I believe a lot of the calls we've had even lately have just been this test of the system. Are they really there? We don't really see them, you know, like they can see anesthesia and they can see the, you know, OB right there. They know the OR is right there. But like, we're these people, they're not right here. If you can prove that you are a reliable partner, then I think over time, building this relationship, you will start being able to make a bigger difference with the practice. So it sounds like there's a little give and take involved. What guidelines did you come up with to treat these patients as you were going through this process, given that there's a relative lack of data on these patients that are in the gray area between embolization, say, and a hysterectomy? That's one of the benefits, I think, of us being able to formalize a team, much like the per team is, right? Like, we don't have a lot of great data that tells us what to do in pulmonary embolism. But if we were able to put these teams together across our IR practices, then I think we would be able to aggregate lots of data points that may inform us about when we do need to try to get involved. So there is already a massive transfusion protocol at our hospital. And a lot of that protocol is being used in the PPH space as well, in terms of when do you start pulling the cart and doing things. So what I ended up doing was to looking at the current recommendations from ACOG and where do they think that um, what is the next point before another intervention is done, right? So it is that after you've lost 500 cc's or 1000, now it's any amount of blood with hemodynamic instability, with not just estimated blood loss, but actual blood loss. And then you will start uh, ureterotonics or when you start doing, uh, you know, massaging of the fundus or maneuvers to cause the uterus to contract, you know, there's this algorithm, this stepwise thing. And so what I've done is to say that whenever you have gone to the next step, that's when IR needs to be notified. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking, okay, I've done the massage, but now I need to put a backward balloon. When you move to that step, you need to just give us a call. If you've done a backward balloon and you're like, okay, I am going to keep it up 24 hours, like before you move to the next step of I'm going to start pressers or whatever, then you need to give us a call. So we've just been introducing ourselves earlier and earlier in the process. And to make it clear that this phone call, just like in the rest of the team, per team or trauma team, it is not that you're going to do a procedure. It is that we are part of the consultative body that we're lending ourselves to um, what else can we do here? And yes, it may end up in an embolization. And sometimes we may decide that um, nothing needs to get done, or we may just decide that, okay, let's keep the backward balloon up a little bit, or okay, can we use a Jada device instead? If someone is calling us from far away, now we have to try to figure out what else can we do to stabilize that patient before they can be flown here to Emory? Or can we talk to the IR doctor that is at that rural site and help them to figure out how they may be able to help that patient where they are? So the guidelines are, I don't think that they are hard and fast, but really it is to just try to insert yourself before the very next step. And at all costs, to be sure that we're communicating that hysterectomy is usually considered as a last resort, and it is a life-saving procedure. 
but equally life-saving is a uterine sparing procedure. And in many of these instances, a lot of providers, Dr. Hamilton, they just think of it as, oh, you know, is it, it's, it's a life and death. We just have to take the uterus out because we're needing to save this person's life. But now that there's more data around some of the ill effects, especially the psychosocial effects from removing the uterus in this traumatic fashion, now it's not just a matter of life or death because you're going to have someone that is alive that would have rather died. Yeah. And I'm sure you've received some patient feedback about the ability of IR to save the uterus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thankfully, simultaneously in the OB literature, there is also more and more being published, not just for these situations where it's an emergency, but how uterine sparing procedures in general may have more benefit also in cardiovascular health and overall wellness. That's wonderful. I would think that part of setting up a team like this would involve educating your OB colleagues. And you alluded to this about the parallels with trauma. How have you found that educating process, you know, with your OB colleagues about IR's ability to help address these kinds of high intensity life or death situations? Lucky for us, one of the sites where we needed to implement this more earnestly, there is already a trauma response team, right? The the trauma team. And one particular case, uh, Dr. Hamilton, that sparked quite a bit of uh, a review included a trauma. And so the trauma team was involved in a discussion, uh, the uh, high stakes situation up front. And it was just helpful to us to have the trauma team articulate how the interventional radiology team responded in trauma. So many IRs around the country are going to have good relationship with the trauma team. They are the trauma endovascular service of choice. And I think that sometimes using our allies to speak for us in places where our voices may not be heard as much can be very powerful. And so having the trauma team review a case where IR was, you know, also not called and again, coming back to the, well, they're not available. They all I hear is that they're going to be here in a long time. They were able to speak for us. We also provided a tour of the OBGYN to our area because we're not on the same floor. And so that became some of the issues. And then trying to work out the logistics of how do you get someone from one place to the next? So when you say education is not just of the obstetrician physicians themselves, but also of the nurses that are sometimes making the decision whether they're going to call the doctor or not based on what the blood loss is if it's not immediately in the obstetric area, but if the patient is on the floor. So it wasn't, and still is, still is, I don't want to say that this is all solved, that this educational piece is all across the board is to the anesthesiologist, is to the nurses. And what I would tell people is, again, I'll repeat, find your allies in the hospital that know of your work already and see if they can help you with this conversation to address the issues that our obstetric colleagues may have because they don't really interact with us in this emergency situation much at all. The people that you interact with emergently, the critical care doctors, the transplant doctors, the trauma doctors, they can speak for you. 
Those are really great points about, you know, utilizing the relationships that are already well forged. And then also about, you know, needing the whole team to be educated. I mean, you may need a dry run where the whole team is figuring out, okay, how is the patient getting from here to there? And when does that nurse call, as you said? And it exposed also some of the things that we don't do as well. We don't have this common language that allow us to speak across the the community of people that are taking care of these types of patients, right? So if I needed to come in for an emergency in a TIPS, for instance, like I would be able to ask what the MELD score is or, you know, whatever, everybody would be able to tell me or a PE, I'd be able to say, can you classify this massive, submassive or, you know, PESI score We lack this lexicon when we're trying to figure out how sick is this patient that you're calling me about. I'll share the story of, you know, being a part of one of these conversations where the nurse was trying to express how much distress the patient was in. And her language was exactly the same, 20 minutes apart. And the thing that she said was like, I think this patient is, this patient is bleeding a lot. And it is only in the pressure of her voice that that was communicated to the team on the other end to really understand that this patient is bleeding a lot. The words were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So I know that we need to come up with our own language or a common language that everyone understands that this is just an education. We're just giving you a heads up. This patient is uh, doing fine, just letting you know versus maybe it's an orange or red or yellow. I, I don't know if it's going to be colors or numbers, but I'm hoping that when we collect enough data, we can have objective evidence that we can introduce so that everyone will know what is happening with this patient and what needs to be done next. So are you gathering any data at these hospitals that you're with on the effect of your response teams on patients with hemorrhage? Yeah, so we were able to look back at one hospital only since we've been included in the maternal morbidity and mortality reports that happens every month. And again, I want to point out that it is still in its infancy, but we show up religiously no matter what. And we answer every call all the time. And what we were able to look at through their process, this is not my data, by the way, this is their data, that transfusions continue to be the main things, the ways that we treat postpartum hemorrhage. But of the six patients that we were able to treat, three of them had very specific needs related to the inability to get blood. And this is an area that we would have not known that if we weren't collecting that data now. <laughs> or did they have a religious um, objection to for blood relig- Yes, for religious reasons, as well as there are times nowadays where blood itself was uh, short at the hospitals. In those time periods, an embolization was thought of first. Um, wonderful niches for embolization where we do not want to spill any additional blood. Absolutely. And then our second, the second half where the referrers were the same. Again, something that we thought instinctively that we were able to see in data that the providers that we interacted with for the first three patients referred the next three patients. They saw the immediate effect of the embolization. Absolutely. And then again, it is just us keeping our word. If you said you were going to be there, you're there. 
right? So then when there was a, an opportunity again to decide, are we going to go to the operating room or are we going to call IR? We were called earlier on. And so I'm hoping that next year, what we'll see is less and less blood being given and an interventional radiology, at least at Emory and Emory Grady, that we're called earlier and earlier so that we can make more of a difference. That's wonderful. Are there any other lingering clinical questions that this process has brought up for you? Yeah. So the other thing that I just can't wait to see once we have more and more data is we know that we're seeing a certain amount of these patients, Dr. Hamilton, that are already in DIC, even without receiving the traditional, you know, massive transfusions, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we understand that process as well in this population, why this DIC profile so much earlier on. I'm sure it has lots to do with the hues around childbirth and pregnancy itself, but that to me is a, is a lingering question. You know, we, we see platelet numbers that are high, but platelets that are quite dysfunctional. And mm-hmm. I do know that there is work being done in the basic science space, looking at Van Willebrand factor and depletion in this population and how maybe in, in the future embolization is going to be augmented with focal infusion of Van Willebrand factor as, as in patients that already had it's deficit by birth, right? But that is something for the future. And and before we wrap up, I want to also caution, uh, and again, this is one institution's experience about hemodynamic instability. I think there's so much that we just don't know around this particular time of childbirth as it relates to what is happening physiologically. So currently, we classify hemodynamic stability about how much blood loss you can have before you get tachycardia or you get pallor or based on trauma data. But the physiology during birth in terms of what amount of blood is being lost from, you know, across the placenta versus what the mother has, the position position of mom, you know, those are all things that we just don't understand. And I've seen people who've been classified as, you know, hypotensive, and that is just because they're laying on one side or the other. This is before before delivery, uh, for instance. And we know that the gravid uterus will have a compressive effect on the on the IVC, etc. I I do know that if you're questioning this, if something doesn't sound right, I would just ask that you put on your IR hat and channel your inner IRness, which is your MacGyverness, to say, <laughs> okay, can you get this blood pressure in the other arm or? Is there an A-line and this heavy reliance on what hemodynamic instability could look like in this population that we just put a pause on that and recognize that we may not know all of what we need to know in this space. And then lastly, is we as an IR community, I know that we're as prepared as any other community in dealing with health inequities and disparities. And if you're listening to this now, I would just let you know that the entire medical community is waiting on this IR community to show the lead, take the lead as it relates to postpartum hemorrhage and embolization 
and try to close that disparity gap that we see present with maternal deaths and not just mortality, but morbidity, where we see our people of color experiencing poor outcomes, three to four to five times difference than the uh, other communities. So I would say that if we as the interventional community adapt the CDC motto of hear her and I am proud to say that I belong to the interventional community where we do a pretty good job at listening to patients and listening to their families. And if we put ourselves in the places where we're hearing her, I think that we could actually make a bigger difference uh, sooner. That's another area of potential research. You know, how are the disparities that we know exist in healthcare with minorities and with women's healthcare at large? How are those affected in this setting? And what can we do to be leaders? So that's really inspirational. Thank you so much for sharing your time and insights. It's always wonderful to catch up with you. We're going to wrap the podcast today with the final question that we always ask, which is if you were not an interventional radiologist, what would you be? Well, I think uh, Anderson Cooper should watch out. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a teacher in my heart of hearts. I was born to teach. I tell people both my parents were high school principals. And if I did not lend that to the field of interventional radiology, I could see myself teaching anything. If I know anything for sure, then I tend to want to teach it. So there's a possibility that I would be teaching uh, some form of medicine somewhere. Well, you've taught us a lot today and we so appreciate your sharing your experience. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Janice Newsom describing her efforts to educate the medical community on the potential of postpartum hemorrhage response teams to save lives. We thank Dr. Newsom and Dr. Hamilton for their time and you for listening to The King Choir. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surweb.org.